Hello, and welcome back to Working Title, a podcast where two writer friends stumble through books we love looking for writing secrets. Now back for season two. Hey. I can't believe it. (laughs) Good to see you all again. It's good. I mean, it's good to see you, Leah. <laughs> good, to see you. good to hear from you. Good to see that, you know, we do see those numbers of people listening. So it's good to be back. It it's is good, good to be back. back. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am Dana. Uh, and this week in my writing, I am discovering the true joys of um, creating in different uh, mediums so mm. that I can embrace the process of transferring over. I've recently been working on my work in progress a lot in just like by hand in notebooks, Ooh, yeah. which is good because it makes my brain feel weirdly like it's less serious or permanent than if I put it on a computer. But then the process of like opening the document and typing it all in, first of all, makes me feel awesome because it is a bunch more words that I don't have to think about as I'm typing in. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of like an editing process because half the time just typing that you're like, oh, no, why is that adverb there? (laughs) Goodbye. I'm not typing that. And then it like gets me all jazzed up to keep writing. Yeah. I don't know. It feels... It feels very much like it's like, it's not efficient. It's the opposite of efficient, but it is feeling very good. And Satisfying. it means that I spent, yeah, I spent a lot more time today writing than I think I would have otherwise. Oh, amazing. I feel like when I write by hand, I, yeah, I'm i like, you know that, you don't know because you're not on TikTok, but there's this TikTok sound that's like, <laughs> ooh, what a sophisticated gentleman. And it's about a cat. But that's how I feel when I'm writing. Like, that's the voice I hear in my head by hand because I, I don't, it just feels fancier to me somehow. Yes, I love it. I will never get on TikTok because they're, it cannot possibly better than, be better than hearing people describe TikTok. No, and it will suck up your time. Yeah, it's interesting trying to describe TikTok trends. Uh, it's a little it's a little test of my storytelling abilities. Um, <laughs> and speaking of hello, I am Leah. And I was actually just talking to Dana about this today. I printed off um, a bunch of my novel and the kind of, it's not so much an outline, it's like a jumble of thoughts. Mm. So I printed that out and I started writing and trying to organize it. And I really, this story makes me feel like I am a baby who has a tenuous grasp on object permanence and is just, (laughs) and is just starting to understand shapes. And so, you know, you give those babies that little block puzzle where, you know, there's a star shaped block and a circle block and they have to put it in the star shaped hole in the circle shaped hole. And I feel like I have all of these blocks, aka the pieces of my story, and I'm just trying to ram them in all of these different holes. And I can't even tell if they fit or not. And maybe, you know what, maybe I have the right piece in the right hole. I have the star piece, the star hole, but I have, I'm holding the star sideways, so it's not going in. Like, it's just, it's really a lot of, like, me banging around and trying to figure things out, uh, slowly, slowly realizing how to put these pieces together. Narrative structure, what is it? Boy, she's a complicated one. She is. But I love this metaphor. <laughs> and look, it's more it fits it fits right in, right? <laughs> We're here because writing should be more like wandering through a forest or playing with blocks. <laughs> yes. It's all about the discovery. Yeah. As long as I'm having fun trying to put the star-shaped block into the circle, you know what? Who can knock it? I'm not hurting anybody. Absolutely. That's what we do this for. It's supposed to be fun. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining us. We are kicking off our brand new season with a flashback episode, which for newer listeners means we are discussing a single book that both Leah and I have read together. Today, we are talking about The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill. I will attempt to summarize for those of you who may not have read the book or if you just want a little refresher. The Protectorate has been sacrificing babies to the witch in the woods for hundreds of years. But Zan the witch doesn't know why. (laughs) On her journey to bring a particularly special abandoned child to a new family, she accidentally enmagics the child and then accidentally adopts her and names her Luna and becomes her grandmother. (laughs) 
As Luna grows up and her magic gets more and more dangerous, forgotten secrets begin to come to light. A council of authoritarian elders, a centuries-old betrayal, and a sorrow-eating witch hiding in plain sight. Ooh, I got tingles. I mean... Look, it was this this is a hard book to summarize in some way because mm-hmm. there are so many lovely little pieces of narrative that like you start to write it and you're like, "Oh, I didn't even mention the dragon." Yeah. Or I didn't even mention this part of the thing. But it's an easy book to write a summary for if you want it to sound cool and vibey <laughs> because the whole book is cool and vibey. Yeah, and it's also really interesting because the main the character who the title is referring to isn't like if you read the description you would think it would be very actively following her and she Mm -hmm. is central to the story but not in the way of like a traditional protagonist like it's very much this multi-perspective yes where you're getting all of these pieces and luna's a little bit at the center of why the pieces are coming together that the, the way that they are yeah she really is in in some cases more of a catalyst mm-hmm. than like the the focus of the narrative mm-hmm. in the way that you would typically expect you know this is this is a middle grade novel um this is very much like a growing up kind of coming of age story mm-hmm. but instead of sort of doing that thing that you see a lot in those kinds of stories where you pop down in the head of this one character who's navigating that growing up process yep. here you spent you spent a lot of time with luna but you spent a lot of time with zan you spent a lot of time with some of the fantastical friends that luna has grown up with mm-hmm. including glurk the swamp monster and furion the tiny dragon the perfectly tiny dragon <laughs> the perfectly <laughs> tiny dragon and then also with a bunch of the people in the protectorate yeah. uh antane who's sort of our closest thing to a hero Uh, from the protectorate who's trying to learn what's going on and stop the you know this sort of horrible tradition of giving up children Mm -hmm. and then yeah some of the the more villainous characters in the protectorate including the elders and uh sister ignatia the sorrow eater great name so first up leah you chose this book for us Mm -hmm. What made you choose it? What what made this one of the books that you wanted to dig into again and dig into in this format and like try to pull out writing lessons? Yeah, I mean, I love this book. It's heavy on the whimsy, which draws me in immediately. But really why I wanted to read it again is linked to its narrative structure. And you just mm-hmm. heard me talk about how that's something I'm struggling with I think it's the way that Kelly Barnhill manages to bring together all of these different moments from perspective, all these different perspectives from these different characters. And you have this kind of layered mystery throughout and how they all, you know, it's, it's the classic story of like, you're following all of these characters and you're like, they have to converge. They have to converge at some point. And then they do. (laughs) And you're like, whoa, you know, Um, I think it's, it's such a it's such a rich story. There are a lot of layers, mm-hmm. but it feels so light. Yeah. No, there really is like it, it there's something that um I usually associate it with poetry when you're like there's such density of meaning. Yeah. But just like a lightness in I don't know, in just the feel of mm-hmm. the thing. Mhm. It feels it feels like you you almost kind of just float through the story. Mhm. And I also love its subversions. Not just once, right? Because in the beginning, you open with a story about the witch, the evil witch who takes away the babies, and then cuts the witch, and the witch is like, why do these idiots keep leaving a baby out here? (laughs) (laughs) It truly, that definitely was one of the things that, when you talk about narrative structure, that I found really interesting, especially about the beginning of this book. It felt a little bit like... um, like a twist on the classic improv rule, right? If you're doing improv, the the classic rule is you have to yes and whatever mm-hmm. anybody says. Somebody says something and you're like, that's true and also this is true. And the first like four chapters of this book are uh, no and or <laughs> no but. Like we start out, yeah, the first chapter sets up the story as there's a terrible witch. This is a story about a terrible witch who requires the sacrifice of children. And then the second chapter is 
no, this isn't about a terrible witch. It's about a terrible tradition. Mm -hmm. There is no witch. This is all just created by these authoritarian uh, dickbags. Um, <laughs> and then the third chapter is, no, no, no. Actually, this isn't just a story about a terrible tradition. This is a story about a good witch. There's a good witch who's taking these children and bringing them to families and then the next chapter immediately says, this isn't just a story about a good witch. This is a story about some sort of forgotten sorrow. Yeah. But truly, like, each time you feel like, oh, okay, you've set up the narrative. I know what this story is. The next chapter says, well, actually. <laughs> is it really, though? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Even the parts where, like, you know, they set up Zan as the good witch, right? And for most of the book, you're just kind of like, yep. Zan is the Zan is just doing her best, TM, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not until the very near the end where Zan is like, hold wait a second. Why didn't I ask myself why they were leaving babies out, out in the woods? So you spend this whole time because I think it's also like fairy tale stories train you to be like, Yeah, of course. You know, she saw a baby in the woods, she took the baby and took care of the baby. She's good. That's it. End of story. And that's Zan was doing that partly because of like her own trauma and her own forgetting and her own sorrow and not wanting to face that. Yeah. And she has to come to reckon to that. I feel like so many of the characters have to reckon with the things that they had forgotten on purpose, almost the things that they didn't want to face. They have to face it and recognize their part in it, even if it's something as small as yes, I did a good thing for these babies, but why didn't I ask myself why they were there in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up the forgetting and the memory because I feel like that's that's definitely a really consistent theme throughout uh, the story. And one that definitely jumped out at me because if you just pitched to somebody, you were like, I'm going to write a book. And they were like, cool, sounds great. Love the vibes. How are you going to move the plot forward? Like, how is the plot going to develop? Mm -hmm. And if your answer was, well, the characters already know all the relevant information, but they've forgotten it. And at various points throughout the story, they will remember it. It would sound like a terrible idea, <laughs> right? It would sound deeply contrived and ridiculous, but it manages to, one, be, be a really interesting and effective storytelling mechanism. Mm -hmm. And it, it leads us in different directions, right? Like some of the first times we see Zan sort of grasping at some of these memories where she's like, sorrow is dangerous. I don't remember why. And I'm sitting there where we're still hearing stories about the terrible witch and the volcano and the horrible thing that happened that broke whatever was once good here. And I'm sitting there like, was Zan once a bad witch? Like, is that we don't meet the actual bad witch until like page 80 something, like pretty far in yeah. to this to this book. And it, it creates all these different opportunities. But it definitely, like, having having so much of the plot be your characters already know a lot of the answers, but they don't remember them, sounds so contrived on paper. But in this, it also managed to support the themes because so much of this story is about all these different characters dealing with sorrow and grief mm -hmm. and trauma. Mm -hmm. And that is so intimately tied with the ways that we can't forget things or the ways that we make ourselves forget things that are too painful to hold on to. And we just get like a whole spectrum of that, yeah. of people remembering things that they shouldn't or couldn't and forgetting things that they shouldn't have and trying to yeah. hold on to all of that. I mean, it's not just forgetting too. It's also like future, like thinking about the future, yeah. thinking forward, because that's part of what the sorrow sometimes can rob you of. Like if you don't feel mm -hmm. like you're in a place where you're empowered to change something like a it's easier to forget and just put your head down but yeah. b like you lose that ability to imagine this other future and that's why i think in some ways the story of luna's mom is so interesting because there's so much of it that is about cultivating hope and listening to the hope mm -hmm. because all of the other protectorate parents who lost their children like, yeah, I had visions of the child, but there's no use changing anything. And for a while, Luna's mom is kind of sometimes thinking that. I mean, she's also being gaslit, like, a lot every day. Yep. But she's listening to that, to that voice, and it grows stronger and stronger. And I think she's a really interesting foil to Sister Ignatia. 
100%. Like that's that's definitely you know, we meet we meet Luna's mom initially and my sense was that this was going to be a very brief almost throwaway character. Mm-hmm. You know, this like powerful first scene where, you know, her child is taken from her against her will. Um and she puts up a fight and everyone's like, "How dare? We we don't fight here. We mm-hmm. just give in and and we sit in the sorrow." And yeah, and she's taken away to be gaslit and held captive for years. I sort of figured that that was going to be, you know, what happens to a lot of parents in fairy tales, right? Like, okay, now now the child lives with Zan, her adoptive grandmother, and we never hear about Luna's mom again. And instead, she is persistent. She's learning how to cultivate hope. She's finding all sorts of other, like, magic in the things that she refuses to forget, yeah. Right. Like she refused. They 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 talk about like actively gaslighting as far as like you never you never had a child. You mm-hmm. never like all of these kinds of things. And she's like, I know I have a child. I know that she's alive. I know where she is. I know all the, even things that I shouldn't be able to know because I have found access to this magic. And she also forgets her own name. Yeah. You know, like there is there is that give and take there. But so much of the things that she's choosing to remember are about choosing to cultivate hope and choosing to still fuel that fire of I'm going to find a way to change what's going on. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think that's why like Sister Ignatia, you learn at the end. I think with these types of stories, it's very easy to be like, Yes, and the witch was evil and uh, ate sorrow because it gave her more magic and she was greedy and terrible. And that's true. Yes. But also, there's a kind of pity for her towards the end because you learn that the source of that hunger for sorrow is to mask her own sorrow. It was like her sorrow turned to bitterness and it just sucked everything else in. Yeah. And that it's it's not just look at what these people do to others. It's look at what these people do to themselves. It's not just sorrow is dangerous. Like sorrow is dangerous for you if you don't find ways to to cultivate that hope. And if you turn it into bitterness and just let it suck everything in around you, mm-hmm. you develop a taste for it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really powerful concept. Developing a taste for sorrow because you've had too much of it and you mm-hmm. don't you didn't know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really interesting. And I will say, as far as endings go, I just got to put in a three cheers for, yeah, showing us that the sorrow eater, which is more complicated at the end, not in a way that redeems her, Mm-mm. but in a way that makes us understand a little bit. And then also having our, you know, secondary villain of our main elder who never admits that he did anything wrong. Yeah. And, you know, it's like made clear like he didn't, not everyone, (laughs) some people are just bad. Some people are just in it for all of the worst reasons. And he still got to be a complicated character in that, like, Mm -hmm. we know he cared about his family. Yeah. Uh, He also tried to get that family member murdered for his own purposes. So, you know, give and take here. (laughs) But, like, I think there's sometimes, right, like, there's a weird thing that we can do sometimes in, in all kinds of stories, right? Not just, like, stories for younger audiences where we either make the villains so flat and implacable that you're like, well, of course they're evil. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you're never going to recognize villainy in real life because real life villains don't look like that. They are complicated in different ways. Or it's like, no one's really evil. Everyone's just sad. And it's like, yeah. well, that's also oversimplified. And I feel like this, I mean, this was something that I that I feel like I really enjoyed about this book as a whole is that it found a really interesting way to play in nuance while still being whimsical yes like i initially when we when we talked about this offline you were like oh i'm glad that you enjoyed it i was worried it was going to be too silly or that that you would feel that it was too silly and i think yeah one of the things i loved about this i definitely thought it was going to be one of those books at first because Mm -hmm. zan goes out and talks with her friend the swamp monster whose name is glurk (laughs) and and a character who is a perfectly tiny dragon all three of those words are capitalized. Like, yes, I was like, okay, this is 
mentally already starting to to file that in a category of other books that I love. We love silly, whimsical books, yeah. right? Uh, but I was already like, okay, this is sort of in the, you know, the 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 narrative tradition of like the Phantom Tollbooth, right? Of mm-hmm. like delightfully mm-hmm. silly, definitely is is saying a thing and saying a thing that's valuable. But like in that sort of, you're just going to sort of read it like, ah, love this, amusing, moving through. <laughs> And it was that, but it also was something different. And I really mm-hmm. liked, I think it was sort of, you were set up for that in those like first chapters, but throughout you're like, yeah, this is, there's some very silly stuff and also some very real hard things that mm-hmm. like, they're still dealt with in a way that it feels very appropriate for the target age group, but doesn't feel like, hey, we're, we're condescending to kids here. It's like, no, grief is a real thing. You're going to feel it at any age. So there's like, we're not going to blunt the edges of this, but we're just mm-hmm. going to, I don't know. It, it was a really, really thoughtful treatment and it managed to be both very silly at parts, but also very serious. And that is a hard space to navigate. God, yeah. Especially, especially when you're writing for kids, like you're trying mm-hmm. to do so many things at once. It's a yep. really challenging thing to just like strike all the right balances there. God, yeah. And, and it's, like, it felt like Kelly Barnhill was like, I'm going to write a book that the parent is going to read out loud to their child and get a good amount out of it as well. It's one of yes. those books. Because I I think the parent, and maybe like you, is going to go in and be like, oh, clerk, it's a perfectly tiny dragon. And it would be so easy to just have them be the cute sidekicks. Clerk says, you know, these kind of quasi aphorisms and poetry about the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, Furian is just like, I am very adorable and don't exactly know what's going on and I'm enthusiastic. And then you find out that like Furian also forgot things. That's why he's still tiny. He's he's not aging. And then also Glurk has forgotten who he is because he loves Xan so much and loves the people who were hurt by this so much that he in some way has made himself smaller. It's not just the people mm-hmm. who have been most acutely affected by grief that are impacted. It's the people around them who care for them. And that just like, uh, I when that when that started happening and Furion started growing and being like, what is happening? The kind of bewilderment. Oh, it, it struck me. Yeah, the just, the metaphors were so strong, right? Like yeah. we have, yeah, Furion, the perfectly tiny dragon is not actually a perfectly tiny dragon. He's a simply enormous dragon. But he's been trapped in his perfectly tiny babyhood for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. because he has not processed his sorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing that can happen to people when you don't process things and you get kind of trapped at a time in your life when something happened. And yeah, I think like you're right, like Zan forgot. But I think what you were talking about, about the um, kind of losing sight of the future, Zan kind of does in a different way. Like we see that she she doesn't plan well, even Mm -hmm. when... You know, for for much of the story, as soon as Luna's magic starts to uh, manifest, she's like a very small child, can't control it, can't even really understand what's happening. And Zan realizes this is super dangerous for her and everyone around her and goes to figure out a way to basically like put the magic in stasis until Luna's 13 and has a little bit more of like an ability to learn stuff and figure it out. And it goes awry in that it turns out that for that period until Luna's magic comes back, she can't even see it or hear about it or recognize mm-hmm. it. Like any any signs of magic just kind of make her sort of comatose, which is another way that people can react to trauma and grief. But Zan is also, as soon as this, like she realizes this, she knows what's going to happen and then immediately starts saying, but maybe it won't. Yeah. Right. Maybe this will be fine. Maybe, maybe Luna's just uh, doesn't have magic now. And, you know, because part of this is also that Zan's magic is going to run out when this happens, and that will probably be the end of her life. And she's like, maybe I won't die. Maybe I'll get to hang around and explain everything to Luna. Maybe this is just, uh, Luna's just like this now. And sort of refuses to think about that future because she's so focused on, we don't think about the past. Mm -hmm. We don't think about the future because all of that can be sorrow, right? Like thinking about tragedy that's occurred to you, but also worrying about possible tragic things Mm -hmm. coming towards you over time. It really was just pretty magnificent to see such a variety of ways that people respond to tragedy. And again, we still see that with Luna's mom responding in a really interesting way. Antane as well, responding to 
you know, physical trauma that he's experienced and and then he he's more active in terms of, you know, he's he gets more involved in the later half of the story because he is about to have a child and his child is yeah. going to be the youngest one and the one offered up and he sort of goes out into this fight to prevent future sorrow, but it's it's just such a lovely tapestry. What's interesting about Antin is it's all linked to this guilt he feels about he maybe not super actively, but he participates because he is a witness to it in taking Luna away. Yeah. And that impacts him for the rest of his life. And he spends a lot of his time being like, I don't know what to do. I feel terrible. This shouldn't be happening. And so he just kind of buries his head in the sand. He's like, I'm going to find ways to slack off and not do the thing that I, but I know it's going to continue to happen. And yeah. that, that weight of that guilt. Yeah. How do you respond to seeing sorrow and also mm-hmm. being complicit in causing tragedy and trauma that has a different kind of impact too. Mm -hmm. And then I was also thinking about with Zan, how trying to protect the people you care about from sorrow or even protect others from, from them in some ways, like when you, like you just don't know how to handle it. You're like, I don't know how to raise this child and keep them safe and everyone around them safe. So I'm just going to wrap them in this protective bubble and that does damage too then, right? Because yeah. you're preventing, in this case, you're preventing Luna from knowing things about you and about her mm-hmm. and about the world because of your own fear um, and your own sorrow. And that really that's something that I'm exploring very deeply in my own writing. So I clocked that right away. I was like, I know what this is. Yeah. And, I, <laughs> and I love it. And I think it's something that like as a parent, when you're caring for a child, it's tempting, especially when you have like, your own trauma that you're dealing with. So, I mean, there's obviously the aspect of it's a, fi- a five-year-old who doesn't understand, you know, magic. I-, I remember in the beginning, this is one of the cutesy parts, but also kind of the catalyst to, again, the sadder parts where... Zan is like, maybe we should, like, maybe we should put this protective magic bubble around her. And Glarka's like, oh, I can't. I'm older than magic itself. I can't be affected by magic. And then Luna, a five-year-old, is like, Glark, you're a bunny. And Glark is a bunny suddenly. And he's like, wait a second. This is a lot. This kid has a kick to her magic. Maybe we should. Just true polymorphin all over the place. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a whole, a whole thing. And well, and right, and yeah, and that is very much the catalyst for, okay, that's serious harm that you can do to someone without any awareness, without any mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah. Ugh. The ability to just work all of those themes into different characters that manage to still feel so whole and separate in different ways, I feel like is definitely, definitely stuck out to me here. The skill in this book. And the care. Mm-hmm. I think about Antane a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And I think about the scene with Luna's mom where she kind of rains fury down upon him. Yeah. And in some ways to me, I don't know, this might be like me reading too much into it. Like I'm like, all right, I'm going to write a literary paper on this. But like <laughs> it's this like f- physical manifestation of his guilt and complicity that he has to carry with him forever. And he, what I love about his story is he could have reacted but with anger at the, at Luna's mom, at Adora. He could have, could have been, you know, he could have been like, I didn't deserve this. But his reaction instead is like, no, I was a part of this and something's going to change. You know, I'm right. First, it's I'm going to completely remove myself from society. And then when it's affecting him and his wife, who's also a very interesting character, mm-hmm. he finally decides to take take some action. But a scene in some ways is more action driven than Antane is like more overtly like, no, I've had enough. Whatever this is. No, none of this anymore. Yeah, truly a beloved and, and a character we see the least. But I'm like, wait, I want to I want to know more about you. You right? seem great. <laughs> amazing good on you antane a plus wife finding skills right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the first thing you did right congrats buddy truly truly <laughs> i wanted to talk about too you know, sort of alluding to when she is in captivity and is sort of discovering her powers luna's mom starts making all of these 
paper birds and sort yeah. of thinking about the world as paper that she can sort of pull things out from the cracks and just like make stuff happen. And it definitely occurred to me, you know, reading this book as we are for writing lessons, how much like some of it is like, oh, it's right there. Kelly Barnhill was like, hey, how about we just have Luna's mom give you writing advice about how, <laughs> as she's sitting there and like truly there's like quotes in there where she's like, the whole world is made of paper. The world can be anything, anything I can write on paper. And I'm like, oh, oh, I, I see you. <laughs> I, which feels very much like it's speaking to the writer. And then also the character of Glurk, who is a swamp monster. But also, you know, we have these moments where it's discussed that like Glurk is the world, right? Like the world existed, there was a bog, and it wanted to move around and do stuff. And then it wanted to speak and therefore language existed. And then it wanted to, and everything existed because Glurk told stories, you know, a poem. And the world is a poem and the world is Glurk and the world is the bog. And it all is this like lovely kind of fairy tale feel. But it also very much feels like it's a reminder that no, quite literally, this world is a poem. This entire world is words on paper because mm -hmm. somebody wanted them to exist and therefore they do. You know, we've talked a lot about like the difficulty in remembering that writing is not just supposed to be like a hard thing you slog through because you have to get X number of words and chapters done. It can be hard sometimes to remember like the possibility and the joy and the creativity. Mm -hmm. And this felt very much like it was it was a direct reminder of like, yeah, you just get to pull stuff out of the cracks of the world because you're writing it on paper. Yeah, I think it, this is another way in which I think this story subtly takes on things that a lot of other books try to take on or do take on. Like there are a million books that are stories about stories. And I love them all. Same. <laughs> but a lot of them are a lot more direct about it. A lot of them are like stories yeah, yeah. are important and can change the world. And she's like, yeah, this the story is the world, but it's very subtle. Uh, mm -hmm. The way that stories are told, like the whole thing is about how, like who tells the story and how they tell it uh, affects what you, you know, how, how you perceive what's happening. And also how stories can change on their own yeah. and, and with the design of other people about who controls the story and what that means and how they censor stories even. It's it's a very powerful part. I think, yeah, what you're talking about too is throughout the book, we get these occasional chapters that are stories from a, for most of the book, anonymous parent to their child about the witch and what happened. And none of them are right. You know, but they all have these different pieces and kernels of the truth all kind of mixed up there mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, at first is sort of like explaining why this horrible tradition exists and why, you know, these these people go along with this incredibly painful uh, yearly process. But it also then starts to become actually helpful and informative to letting you know about the real which the center of this and the real villainy and what's actually going on. And and Zan and Sister Ignatia actually directly discuss this at the end when they're talking about those stories. Mm -hmm. And Sister Ignatia's like, I planted all those stories. I planted them about you, Zan, because I was, you know, creating this terrified, sorrowful populace that I could basically just feed on. And Zan is like, but they know. They know pieces about this. They know things that you didn't put there because stories can, they evolve on their own. They grab up pieces of the truth in them. You're so right. There's so many, I, I love all the stories about stories because I'm uh, easy to pander to, but. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but you're right that there's a lot of ones where trying to write about the magic of stories can be challenging, right? Mm -hmm. There's usually then like the sort of, she begins to tell the story and it was so wonderful. And it's sort—it's like weird to do that like meta-narrative story about story from like, a, and I promise it was wonderful and you could see yourself in the story and it just doesn't quite click in that way sometimes when it's very explicit. Mm -hmm. Sort of approaching it sideways, I think does get, you get to tease out more of that nuance without getting lost in like, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of um, 
There's a show called Studio 60. <laughs> it's an Aaron Sorkin show. You can just see your face as you're trying just to figure out it. how to bring, bring that up. Okay, an Aaron Sorkin show. I accept it. An Aaron Sorkin show. And it's an Aaron Sorkin show that's about like an SNL t- style show. It very, very much. It didn't last very long, not least because it mm-hmm. aired the year that 30 Rock first aired and people were like, one's got to go, even though they had very different vibes. Right. Also, I think 30 Rock was better, but whatever but both of them like the challenge about doing a show about a comedy show yeah especially in the case of studio 60 it was really important that that comedy show was good but then you had to write the good comedy yeah but it was a drama about good comedy and it was tough sometimes because sometimes they would show you clips from like the bits that were supposed to be really funny Mm. and you would be like i don't know that i think that's really funny yeah, if you lampshade the funny moment, it it like the people going into the funny moment don't. It's it's like sometimes the value of humor is the unexpected punchline. And if you're like, there's gonna be an unexpected punchline coming up, it can be harder to pull off that comedy. Right, and it's true for comedy, but I I and I think this is true also for just like if you frame up this this character is an incredible singer in like a show or a movie, and mm-hmm. then they open their mouth like boy, I really hope they're a great singer because like <laughs> I I really want that to transport me. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't quite work. And I think that happens a lot in stories about stories. They're like, this storyteller does magic with their stories. And you're like, but I'm not feeling the mm-hmm. overwhelming majesty of it. Yeah, I think in some ways this book is a masterclass in theme and like how to weave your theme mm-hmm. in with your plot. They're just so closely connected. And I felt as well that sometimes you read a book and you can tell that there is a kind of scene filler. Yes. I didn't feel like there was any of that in this book, really. Mm -hmm. And there's, again, there are some moments where in the beginning, this is part of what I think makes it so powerful. There are some moments in the beginning where you're like, yeah, this is just a silly moment. This And it can feel kind of scene fillery, like, well, you know, writing a Millie, a Millie? You're writing a, a middle grade, so you have to have the silly moment. And Kelly's like, you thought it was just a silly moment. Here's the deeper meaning the whole Bish, time. You thought. It's like the, sor- the, the sorrow eater was in front of everyone's faces and she was in front of yours the whole time. Shazam. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, even a lot of the like forgetfulness is initially like, you forget a lot of things when you've been alive for 800 years. And I'm like, ha ha ha, very delightful. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, no, you forget a lot of things when you've been alive that long because you've uh, lost a lot of people and you don't know how to process that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The one-two punch. It's the laugh and then the sob, but then it's all healed at the end. There's truly... I love nothing more than when you can make me giggle and break my heart at the same time. (laughs) We're not going to investigate too much what that says about me as a person. (laughs) Um, We're just going to move forward. (laughs) Yeah. Or also when you can change the reader's perspective as they're going through the book. Yes. And I think that reading this book is going to change how I read future books and the questions that I ask of characters because of the questions that Kelly Barnhill was asking of her characters and making her characters come to terms with. That is beautifully said and I think absolutely true. And I think is also part of... um... I mean, what a lovely way to craft an unexpected narrative without, like, shock value twists, of which there really aren't any. Like, there is some, everything that gets revealed, even when it is surprising, sort of, it makes sense. It feels like you followed, you followed the track there. But, you know, something that I I feel like I've personally discovered recently is that you read a lot of books, you pay attention to a lot of stories, you binge a lot of Netflix shows, it gets harder and harder to surprise you because you kind of know how stories fit together. Mm-hmm. Even if you still struggle to put the blocks in the right uh, <laughs> holes on your own, Oof. you know, you can feel when a story's happening and you're like, you're going to be the bad guy. Or like, oh, you're going to, we've had, a, we've you've had a nice touching scene. Okay, cool. One of you is about to die. Like mm-hmm. the, you get the, you start to get... And I don't think that's a bad thing. I kind of enjoy it because it feels like I can look at stories from a new perspective as well. Mm-hmm. But it means that I get really excited when I am surprised by a story because I've read a lot. I've read a lot of fantasy. I've read a lot of, you know, young adults and, and middle grade fairy tale style 
to just really go somewhere that I don't anticipate is really exciting to me and can be can be really challenging just because like how do you do that and also not have it feel false because a lot of the times there are reasons that stories are structured in some similar ways because they're effective ways to tell the stories we want to tell mm-hmm. they're not it's not bad mm-hmm. to have a story sort of follow a structure where you can feel where it's going that can be really satisfying as well but it was it was it definitely struck me i did not expect it especially from a book that was meant for younger audiences just cuz i feel like usually those stick to more traditional story patterns and i i was really uh really psyched and impressed with how this managed to be like whoops just kidding <laughs> yeah i think that's another sign of a a great writer is when you reflect on it again when you reflect on it there's no other way it could have gone I love this book. I'm so happy that you loved it too. Yeah, we love it's a it's a good book to start out our uh, our second season with. Yeah, you know I think I think there's a lot of things we've kind of touched on that uh, make a lot of sense and are very like closely connected to some of the things you're holding right now about mm-hmm. like narrative structure mm-hmm. or just like similar themes of of grief and and family dynamics. Is there some particular thing that maybe we haven't touched on that you feel like you're really trying to take from this book or absorb from seeing uh, seeing how it tells its own story? Hmm, that's a good question. I think some of it is is questioning tropes as well, thinking about how you can change tropes. Yeah, because Zan is a is the mentor character trope, but isn't the typical mentor character. Normally, the mentor character shows up and is like, well, "Yeah, let's let's get you to learn things." And I'm so wise. Mm-hmm. And Zan is like, "I am wise." Wait, am, like, am I? And there's so much there's so much turmoil there, and also how to give uh, the right amount of weight to each character and weave their story together without it taking away from the the kind of overarching story or none of the characters to me felt like they didn't get enough time which again i think mm-hmm. is especially interesting considering luna uh that's really fascinating to me is like it's like she's the main character but she's kind of not there are multiple main characters and she's yeah the center of it i think there's just so much to unpack about this story and something I I am excited to talk about is Kelly Barnhill's writing process and how I I really think when once you learn about her writing process why the book is the way it is makes even more sense I don't think that's always the case with authors but I think it's true for her well let's learn about (laughs) Kelly Barnhill's writing process Leah Uh, share with the class so one thing I want to start with is the the number of drafts that it takes her to get to a final. And whenever she counts them, she doesn't count the first draft, which she writes by hand. And the first book, she she shared what how many times she revised before finalizing her first book. And she said those were the that was the least amount of times that she's revised. And can you guess how many times? No, I feel like it it I feel like it's going to hurt me <laughs> to know. Yeah. Forty five. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. That feels... I mean, it's comforting to know I'm not, uh, like, that maybe my process is uh, on track in terms of number of revisions, but (laughs) it's just a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. It's so much. But I think it makes sense for why it's... Why so many elements of the story feel very carefully considered. And it's because Mm -hmm. she's gone through them so many times. And she said that she, so when she starts a story, she has a box where she collects all of these kind of random thoughts and ideas. And it can be anything from uh, conversations that she has with characters to types of clothes to whatever. And then she kind of starts shaping different paragraphs to get the voice. Something I thought was really interesting was she was actually a hesitant reader. Her first engagement with stories was through oral storytelling. First, telling mm-hmm. stories to her little siblings that she had to watch, but then also reading stories out loud. And so for her, the sound of a book, and she said this is particularly important for middle grade because a lot of younger readers, 
they're still saying the sentence in their head as they're reading it. Yeah. So the sound is a lot more important. So even now she reads, she'll read stories aloud a lot as she's writing it, which I really, really loved. I found a blog post from when she was writing The Girl Who Drank the Moon. And in the blog post, she was talking about how actually, and she said this in other interviews, she's thought about giving up writing so many times. And part of it is that it never gets any easier. She think, she said, I think a lot of writers give up because they think it'll get easier and it doesn't. Mm. And so she was thinking about giving it up again. She was, She had all this doubt in her head. And she was talking to this fifth grade girl. And this fifth grader was like, should I be an author when I grow up? And Kelly Barnhill was like, absolutely not. Do not do it. It is torturous. And the girl was like, I don't know about that. It sounds pretty cool. And she was like, well, you have to sit with the same bit of writing all of the time. And I mean, she for first she made jokes about how you never get paid and blah, blah, blah. Right, but then right. she was like, you have to sit with the same bit of writing. And you have to think to yourself, either this is good or it's terrible. And I, I don't know which one it is. And the worst part, she said, and the worst part is that most of the time it's terrible. Like almost all of the time. But that's part of writing is you have to write the bad stuff first and you have to spend so much more time with the bad stuff than the good stuff. And the fifth grader was like, she was like, yeah, the Kelly was like, yeah, it really weighs on you after a while. The fifth grader was like, I don't know if your stuff's so bad. Tell me about what you're working on right now. And Kelly was like, yeah, well, I'm writing a story with a perfectly tiny dragon and the fifth grader was like, that sounds amazing. Just keep keep doing that. <laughs> and uh, Kelly Barthill was like, wait a minute. I actually really like this. And she made a list of all the things that she likes. And I feel like it goes back to, like, finding joy in the process. That's something that she yeah. really emphasized. And getting rid of should. Like, I should be published by this time. This book should be finished. I should be writing in this way. And just doing it how it happens, kind of letting go. She actually, so she went to school initially for medicine, and when she was very young, she thought she was going to be a doctor or a nun. So she, instead, she said creative writing, and then she graduated college, and she said all of the words that had been flowing through her kind of just dried up, and some of it, some of it was that she thought her motivations maybe weren't right, like she was, she thought she was going to be a poet, and she said later on that Glurk in some ways led her back to herself about how characters how characters can lead you to the center of you. Like on one hand, writing is a skill and you're building the skill. But on the other hand, as you're writing things, you're revealing parts of yourself, which I thought was really poetic, um, mm -hmm. very fitting. But at the time she was like, I'm going to be a poet. I'm going to win awards. I'm going to be great. And she just couldn't write. And I think some of it was the pressure. And so she went and did other things. And she was like, that part was necessary. Doing the other things was necessary because I was growing into myself and what I believe. And part of what she believes is this kind of that it's not just that reading is an act of radical empathy. It's that writing is an act even more so than reading of radical empathy yeah. because you have to inhabit the lives of your characters. And she goes on to say that, like, even the villains you have to find sympathy for. And you mm -hmm. look at the way that she writes villains, not just Sister Ignatia, but also even Garolyn. Like, the end feeling yeah. for Garolyn is pity. It's not, you don't see that anger and rage. And I feel like so much of that is informed by her, her like philosophy and perspective on the world. And so I think you, you take her kind of like inner drive for like compassion and lack of judgment and her love of words and her love of stories, being a true believer in stories. And you look back at this book and you're like, this makes sense. This, this to me feels like something that someone with your life story would write. Yeah. No, I love, it's so interesting hearing like the perspectives that other people come to these things with. And I think it's, it's valuable. It's valuable to hear them in terms of the ways that we connect to them and the ways that we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when they're not coming at it with like a super prescriptive, uh, this is uh, 10 easy steps to becoming a published yeah. author. Because, um, yeah, fuck that noise. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for something like that where you can, one, I think, yeah, to like see see the parts where you're like, oh, you also struggle with all the doubt. Mm -hmm. And also the, that, that constant push to like, 
how do you balance because you do need to be critical Mm -hmm. at points you need to be critical uh, during the 45 revisions or more or fewer or whatever I don't think there's a magic number but yeah like you that's when you do have to bring your critical brain and say how can I make this better more effective but you also need to be able to live in the joy of it Mm -hmm. right like that's something that I've been holding that again I uh was something that uh, Tim Clare was saying on the 100 Day Writing Challenge podcast was like, what is your writing giving to you now? Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's, it's it, we, a lot of times we talk about like, what, what is, how good is it going to feel when it's done? Right? Like how good is it going to feel when the book is done or I've sent it to publishers or it is published or just when it's done and I don't have to work on it anymore. And like, that's great. But like writing things takes a long time. You should... It's fair for you to ask your writing to give you something Mm -hmm. (laughs) while you're here, right? Whether that's joy or fulfillment or deeper understanding or amusement, whatever it is for you, like you've got to, or you'll, you'll, or you just won't do it, right? In which case, like, that's great. You can also go live into your life in other ways. But if you want to write, it's fair to say this should not just be, you know, my sacrificial baby in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, sh- I should be getting something out of this as a human as who's just living my life and trying to do this and create. And yeah, that that's definitely something that I feel like can be a lot easier when you connect with kids who are, I mean, I've definitely thought about that as like, you know, when I get like lost and just like, I don't know, is this any good? And I'm like, you know who wouldn't give a single shit if this was good or not is Lil Dana. Lil yeah. Dana would be like, sorry, you wrote a book? And I'd be mm. like, it's way too long. I think it's maybe a little contrived. And they would be like, uh, I give, can can I read it? Like, I just want, you have another idea for one? Well, I go, I want to read it. Like that would have been the energy there. And like, I don't just want to please little baby Dana. I also want to write things that uh, feel interesting and challenging and compelling to me now. Mm-hmm. And that ideally other people will also think are good writing and valuable and all sorts of things. But it's important to not forget that piece of it mm-hmm. and to like hold that both of those are necessary parts. You need to be able to say, yeah, I'm writing a story about perfectly tiny dragons. That's awesome. And also be able to look at a piece of dialogue and be like, I need to I need to scrap this or change it or do something to make it more effective. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing which pieces to let go of, mm-hmm. I think can be a real, a real challenge. And also like knowing when things don't need to perfectly make sense or perfectly align. Yeah. I think I, it goes back to the should, like, oh, I need, how, how does this make sense? And when does this make sense? And again, I think back to myself and when I was younger and it's like, yeah, reality doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we exist, like existence is inherently absurd. Like have at it. <laughs> I'm small and I don't understand anything. So this is fine. <laughs> right. Exa- I mean, I'm big and I still don't understand you know existence is still absurd it's just absurd in a different way um but yeah I I don't know there's just so much this book and I I've read it twice this year and I kind of want to read it again and some of it is is tackling how like the narrative structure and also like narrative tension for example even something as simple as towards the end when all of the characters are converging and the chapters are shorter and you're just flipping through each character as they're getting closer and closer together. And then it's like, and also there's a volcano and you're like, well, yep. <laughs> dang, there's like, there's something about the physical structure, but then there's also something she was talking about our process. And, you know, it's the classic, like, how do you write characters like this? How do you develop a world like this? And she's like, I don't know. It's very intuitive. Like, some people have this very cerebral organized way of doing it, but I'm just kind of like, this feels and sounds right. She talked about the physicality of storytelling. Like Mm. you should feel that it's right in your chest. It's Mm -hmm. not. And this is also in the girl who drank the moon, because on one hand there's like the physical knowledge of like the library that sister Ignatia keeps locked away. There's like the knowledge of magic that's hidden, but then there's also, and this is talked about the feeling of truth in your chest. The feeling of knowing something yeah. in your heart. 
I love it. I love that. I love that. And that's a really good thing to like talk about and hold on to. And I think also wanted to just like connect actually two things that you were saying about recognizing that there's not necessarily a single right way to do things. And also the way that like often good writing feels like, well, of course, this is the way that it had to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can be a hard thing to hold as a writer and a reader and the duality there of recognizing that while it's while that is a wonderful thing to strive for in terms of how your writing hits a reader, that's theater, baby. That's all mm-hmm. just that's the that's the, you know, the sleight of hand. It could have gone infinite numbers of ways and would also, I think, like there that's part of why there's infinite numbers of good stories and not just like this one is the right story and the <laughs> this rest is are. the story yeah but it's it's that can be hard to remember sometimes when as a reader you can just luxuriate in of course this had to happen and you don't see the writers sitting there staring at the 800 <laughs> paths that the story could take and probably could be just as good in different mm-hmm. ways right they it, the process is not finding the one story the process is finding which story you want to tell right now and how you can do that best yep but like it is one of those things that can be you know you talk about like uh you've definitely have seen published authors be like y'all if you could see the draft i sent to my (laughs) my agent or my editor like please don't judge your work before it hits an editor against published work that has been through a team of people helping to make it what it is and like that that I think is part of it but also just reading a finished product you don't see all the different choice points yeah and it's so easy to then look at your choice points and say something's wrong where's the story and be like no I I'm I'm finding it right now Mm -hmm. and also about how the things that to you because you spent so much time staring at it start to feel contrived like, she was like, yeah, whatever, there's a dragon. The fifth grader was like, a dragon? You know, like, yep. there. when you spend so much time with that story, it can sometimes be easy to lose sight of the, the things that are magic and also to doubt those things that are magic. Yeah. And something else that she wrote about, I wonder if I wrote it down. So she said that one thing that she loves is she gets to write about magic or sometimes she writes about the real world and it feels like magic or she writes about magic and it feels like the real world and she enjoys these things. And it is, mm. it is all of these things are true at once. And the thing that you thought could just be one thing can be many things. So like, it's, it's not the, the, the element of your story that to you might feel in this moment contrived or maybe silly can be so much more than that and probably is. And also isn't contrived for the simple fact that you love it and this is what you need right now I definitely had I had a conversation with my dad recently where I was talking about I was like yeah I think sometimes like I struggle because I worry that maybe my writing is too self-indulgent he was like what of course it is what do you mean like it but that's (laughs) not bad right like what else are you doing if you're not and I and I do believe there's there's a degree to which writing can be too indulgent to be enjoyed by other people not too indulgent to exist like yeah but there also is value in recognizing like that desire that I have to be indulgent in whatever way that is right like for me it's often like what if everyone just had really intense feelings all the time can I just really (laughs) dig in here and or whatever the thing is for you it's extremely possible that somebody else has that exact desire and craving right like we we simultaneously can hold this like oh, the thing I want to put is like too self-indulgent and cliche and basic. And it's like, so people will want it is what you're telling me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's popular. It's it's popular and it it's it feels really good and important and people want it. Oh, no. <laughs> like there's and it's a weird thing that you can lose sight of those. Sometimes. Yeah. I've, there's nothing better than when you do like hand a piece of writing to someone and you're like, oh, God, I hope you don't. And then they write back and they're like, this, I love this. And I'm like, I put it there because I love it. I'm so glad. But for a while, you can just feel like you're just sitting there being like, oh, look at this. And be like, I should be I should be doing something, you know, good rather than that delights me. And you're like, what? Yeah. And that's something else that Kelly Barnhill talks about is like 
she believes that self-doubt is toxic. And I could, because I just finished the book, as she said that, I was like, just like sorrow, it's the same thing. Yeah, I feel like I'm making connections to the girl who drank the moon everywhere. Like, on, on, you know, June 5th, 2014, you said this word, and it appears on page, you know, (laughs) 614 in the book. What does it mean, Kelly? Um, Anyway. No, there's for sure, there's for sure a version you could write of instead of a sorrow eater, a doubt eater. Who just then becomes, in fact, in fact, hold on. I think we just invented cynicism. (laughs) I think that is every dude I went to college with when it was like, I know better than to hope. Cool. Have fun. Good for you. I know better than to try or care or hope for anything. Certainly not to, you know, create try to make anything happen it's like yeah. it's the same sort of apathy it can lead you down if you're not and actually listening to her talk about writing and the things that she had to learn about writing I was also um reminded of Gail Carson Levine because mm-hmm. Gail Carson Levine was also like that's the the reason why I had fun with writing is because I didn't place the same pressure on myself that I did in my other artistic pursuits yeah. and that's like the worst Yeah, I think, unless there's anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, I might wrap us. Wrap it up. All right. Thanks so much for wandering with us here on Working Title and for joining us as we embark on our second season. We are so excited to share what we've got coming up. You can follow us on Twitter at WorkTitlePod for sneak peeks into what we're reading next, and to let us know what you think about Tiny Dragons and Sorrow Eaters. Thank you so much, and see you all next time. Bye. Bye.